we are so, you know, sick and tired uh, of feeling sick and tired, we just don't have anything to compare to anymore. And when one of the reasons that my program has gotten so much traction is that I tell people, look, you're going to hate me for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, and then you're going to actually start liking me. Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's cool fact of the day is that if you're feeling full, maybe you can blame it on your guts. It turns out that your guts bulging, not your stomach itself, might be the real appetite killer. At least that's what a new study in mice suggests, and it's probably true for people too. A lot of people complain, oh, that's a study in mice. It can't be true in humans. But there's things where you have a physiological way of saying, you know, that really makes sense versus that's some strange circadian reliant thing, not recognizing that mice have an opposite circadian rhythm to humans, stuff like that. So this is what I'm going to believe applies to us. And this comes from UCSF. And the researchers there identified and studied nerve cells in a mouse's intestines that sense mechanical stretching. So to stimulate full intestines, they activated nerve cells with light and chemicals. By the way, that's so biohacker cool. And as a result, the mice ate less food. And physically stretching intestines with a salty liquid or a diuretic also caused mice to eat less. And different stretch-sensing cells in the stomach also curb the mice's appetites and to a lesser extent. So it's really interesting that those nerve cells send messages up the vagus nerve, which then sends signals to the brain. And those messages about stretching of intestines help to influence the eat or not eat decision, at least according to the theory from these researchers. And you know about the vagus nerve. I've had lots of podcasts about that. It's one of the things that we hack at 40 Years of Zen. Stephen Porges, the father of polyvagal theory, has been on the show a couple times. You should hear those interviews. They're awesome. But what this means to you is that basically there might be new ways to, to treat obesity or even, dare I say, make sure there's enough fiber you know, from those things called vegetables in your diet that would keep your intestines a little bit stretched so your vagus, your vagus nerve would be happy. And you know, one thing leads to another pretty soon. What do you know? You look the way you want to look. And speaking of looking the way you want to look, if you haven't read Superhuman yet and you're a fan of the show, well, you don't have to read it. Just download the audiobook because I read the whole audiobook. And if you think I prep for a show, which takes about eight hours to prep for a show for you, imagine how many thousands of hours of prepping goes into writing a book like that. And it's my first book to hit the New York Times for multiple weeks in a row, which is a good honor. So everyone who's read it says, oh my God, I think it's your best book, Dave. So if you haven't read Superhuman, you got to get it. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time, and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Synolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Synolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synolytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com slash Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave. Use code Dave. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. 
Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health Dave for an exclusive 10% off. Today's interview is with one of my favorite guys, uh, a guy who recognizes straight up that lectins, one of the plant toxins that are out there, one of the plant toxins that I also account for in my recommendations really matter, is on again, a guy who, aside from his fame for lectins, really deserves fame for his incredible background as a cardiologist and uh, being a renowned heart surgeon, celebrity doctor, New York Times author, and basically all around superhuman doctor. I'm talking about none other than Dr. Stephen Gundry. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me again, Dave. Great to see you, as always. Now, if you're a longtime listener, you know that Dr. Gundry's been on the show a couple times. In fact, there's also a special private interview with him that's part of the audio series that you get when you send me a receipt for buying Superhuman. And I have him on more than a few times because, man, this guy has deep knowledge on longevity and his book, The Plant Paradox. And now he's done what I did uh, with uh, The Bulletproof Diet, where I wrote a cookbook. <laughs> it's like, okay here's what you need to know. Here's why it all works, but how do you actually do it? So the new cookbook called the plant paradox cookbook just came out. So I said, Hey, uh, Dr. Gandhi, why don't you come back on the show? Let's talk some more about your work and let's let people know that you've got a new book out. That's definitely worth, uh, worth reading. So you can figure out how to cook so that you don't eat inflammatory plant compounds. Talk to me about kids. <laughs> how important are lectins for kids, Dr. Gundry? So, you know, I I wrote this book, the, the Plant Paradox Family Cookbook, because actually people don't know that when I was a professor at Loma Linda University of, of uh, Surgery, I was also a professor of pediatrics and was a fellow in the American Academy of Pediatrics, because my interest was at the time uh, you know, also in kids' uh, hearts and kids' cardiology. But uh, in my role over the last 20 years, seeing people with immune diseases, a huge number of my patients are families whose kids have autoimmune diseases, whether it's type 1 diabetes, whether it's juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, uh, psoriasis, eczema, you name it. And these families said, okay, uh, you know, my child no longer has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, or we're reversing some of the markers of pancreatic attack with getting lectins out of people's diets. But how do I successfully keep my kid uh, on this program with all of the 10 patients out there and help us? So, and I also have two young grandchildren and two years ago, my daughter, husband, uh, at, uh, I guess just to keep me quiet, switched over to my program. Uh, <laughs> and both, both she and her husband lost 60 pounds each over the last two years. And their kids, my grandchildren, who are three and five years of age, have for the last two years been eating strictly a plant paradox lifestyle. So uh, they said, hey, why don't you, this is a great motivation for you for your next book to, you know, feed kids Make it easy to feed kids. And one of my motivating you know, driving forces is I want people to have food they love, but that loves them back. And you and I, I think, both know that most of the foods that we have been taught to love have the exact opposite effect on us. They certainly don't love us back. It's funny because uh, my kids have been eating a, uh, I'll call it a low lectin diet. And in, in my understanding of things, you know, some lectins are way more aggressive than others. Yes. And, and I've noticed a difference between my kids. My daughter, she can actually eat a, a white potato and she doesn't seem to have any negative effects. I don't think it's good for her. But if she has a little bit at a party, it doesn't matter. My son though, he would, he'd come home 
and he'd say, Daddy, my neck really hurts. And it would go on for weeks. And he'd say, can you rub my neck? And he'd have these weird knots in it. And so finally, we, we went to the school, and it turns out they were putting potatoes in the, the soup that they were serving the kids. And I said, all right, Alan, we're going to just send you with your own soup. And within three days, his pain goes away and doesn't come back. And it's to the point now where he sees a potato and goes, I don't want to eat that. I don't like it when my neck hurts. And I contrast that with my childhood. I was in constant upper back pain, knee pain, joint pain. And I'm sensitive to potatoes. He's sensitive to potatoes. My daughter's not. Is there some laxity? I mean, how perfect of a plant paradox diet do, does, do all of us have to follow to get these results? So I think there are absolutely what I call people who are canaries, uh, the so-called canary in the coal mine, who are absolutely super sensitive to really most of the major lectin-containing food groups. And they may have one that's a particular or, you know, a, a bunch of them that are particular. For instance, uh, I learned from my patients with rheumatoid arthritis that, um, a lot of my patients would kind of go on an almond flour cook. They'd buy all these wonderful cookbooks, uh, you know, making everything out yeah. of almond flour. And a number of them, uh, their pain came back. And they were actually buying like the almond flour at Trader Joe's that was made from whole almonds with the peel on them. Mm -hmm. And little by little, I discovered that the peel on an almond has some lectins that pe some people are going to react to. And I think that accounts for the cultures, particularly in Spain and Portugal, that mothers teach daughters how to soak almonds to get the peel off because no one in their right mind would eat the peel on an almond, <laughs> like a, Mar like a Marcona almond. Uh, and, you know, in Italy, uh, I have yet to find a chef that doesn't know you don't make pasta sauce without peeling and de-seeding tomatoes. And his mother taught him and grandmother taught her. And that's just accepted wisdom. So I think people have a way of figuring this out. I know with the kids that I treat uh, that it's amazing. These kids are very sensitive to, you know, changes and they'll, you know, they'll go over to a friend's house and say, oh, you know, I have a couple of bites of pizza. And for instance, like with Crohn's, they'll, they'll feel it, you know, within an hour in their gut. And they go, ah, you know, why'd I do that? That, was, that wasn't worth it. So uh, that's the long-winded way of saying there are certain people who absolutely should not, you know, come near these things. On the other hand, like I talk about in all the books, I think... The more we protect our gut wall, the better our microbiome diversity. And quite frankly, there are bacteria that love to eat lectins. There are actually bacteria that eat gluten, um, which is a lectin, by the way. And, and the, so the better defense system we have and the thicker the mucus lining on the wall of our gut, the, the much more difficult it is for a lectin to get to where it wants to go, which is actually the surface of the enterocyte to bind to it, flip the zonulin switch, and off to the races. On the cover of the Plant Paradox Family Cookbook, I think I'm seeing meatballs with tomato sauce and, and pasta. Say it so isn't so, Dr. Gundry. <laughs> tomato <laughs> sauce, those... pasta, what's up with this? It can't be the zucchini noodles because you don't like zucchini because it has lectin. So what's those up are, with the photo? <laughs> those are sweet potato noodles. All right. <laughs> and that is uh, tomato sauce, but it is pressure cooked. And the recipes, most of the recipes in the book use one of the modern pressure cookers like an Instant Pot. And the cool thing about pressure cooking is Except for the gluten-containing grains, pressure cooking will do a pretty doggone good job of destroying lectins. And uh, the idea of soaking, for instance, beans, uh, soaking beans uh, with multiple changes of water definitely decreases lectins. 
heat decreases lectins, but there are very valid papers that show that's probably not enough for very sensitive individuals. And a pressure cooker will you know, solve the problem. To their credit, the Eden brand of uh, pre not only soaks their beans, but pressure cooks their beans in a non-BPA can. So I'm actually a big fan of those. But the modern instant pot or modern pressure cooker, and again, there are numerous variations, like a Ninja Foodie, for instance, uh, is a really great thing for families to use. Because the other reason I wrote this cookbook is that, you know, families like my daughter and her husband have jobs. They have to get their kids to 27, you know, after school events. And the temptation is, oh, shoot, we're all so busy. We're all so tired. Let's just grab fast food on the way home. Let's grab a pizza. Let's order, you know, Grub or uh, Uber to deliver. And it'll be okay. Well, it, it's not okay. And the studies that come out, that show that the sooner we start our kids eating properly, and I think you and I would agree what properly might be, this, you set them up for a lifetime of successful health. Uh, as a children's heart surgeon, I can tell you that I could open up the aorta, the main blood vessel that comes out of a kid's heart, when they're eight or nine years old and already see plaque in their aorta. Um, and that ought to scare, you know, any parent to death that a eight or nine year old kid could have plaque in their aorta. Now what's causing that plaque? This is bacteria in the gut. So I happen to think that it is leaky gut or leaky mouth. I think they're uh, actually equivalent but we are releasing not only uh, lectins through the wall of the gut, but bacterial pieces, uh, which are non-living bacteria. There are pieces of cell wall bacteria called LPSs, lipopolysaccharides. Mm -hmm. um, as you know, I, uh, in the books, call them little pieces of shit because that's actually <laughs> what they are. And... The other thing, I've recently presented two papers at the American Heart Association vascular biology meetings that would suggest, uh, I would think it would prove, but I'll at least say suggest, that lectins are a major cause of an autoimmune attack on the surface of our blood vessels that recruit white blood cells to cause inflammation on the surface of blood vessels, and that makes cholesterol get into this inflammation. Uh, I don't think cholesterol per se is the evil empire that people would like to make it. Um, but if you reduce lectins in a diet, uh, then I've shown uh, that those markers of autoimmune attack on blood vessels dramatically decrease. And if you reintroduce lectins in the diet, uh, those markers go back up. So, yeah, I think our, we, as you know, our kids' diet is one wonderful bit of inflammatory food after another. Uh, now, you and I are both horrified by the kids' menus uh, that you see at restaurants <laughs> where uh, my 14-year-old uh, exceptionally healthy dachshund who doesn't have lipomas, these little fat masses all over him, doesn't have cancer, his health isn't falling apart, uh, I wouldn't feed him uh, the kids' menu <laughs> at any of, these, any of these restaurants, and I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't feed it to my kids, and my kids know. they they like, oh, that's for coloring, and we order off the menu that has real food. Um what does the typical kids menu do to children's behavior? I'm, I'm very fond of a study. Uh, it's called the Appleton, Wisconsin uh, food study. And they took uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. I visited. It's a, it's a lovely community north of Milwaukee. And they had a, a junior high school, middle school, with um, actually some typical middle school behavior problems truancies, uh, lots of trips to the vice principal's office. And they got this 
crazy idea that there was an organic uh, cafe bakery in town. And they said, hey, why don't we have this, let's contract with this cafe to provide breakfast and lunch for the school. And we'll bring all the parents in, the PTA, and we'll teach them how to duplicate as best possible these organic meals at dinner. And let's see what happens. So they, and interestingly, uh, this is published. Uh, truancy rates went down, behavior improves, school test scores improve. And they were so impressed that the, the cafe was kind of getting overwhelmed. And they said, well, this is great. We'll, we'll contract to have this done by a outside food service provider. And I won't tell you who they chose, but you they supply a lot of uh, places in airports and things like that. Uh, very hotel corporation. Maybe I've given too much away. But anyhow, mm-hmm. um, when they contracted for this, uh, lo and behold, uh, what they thought they were getting is not what they were getting. Uh, and all the test scores went back down. The truancy went up. The discipline went to, you know, and it was, it's just a remarkable study. And I think that that study in and of itself kind of shows you the power of food. But as I talk about in the book, this, for instance, uh, the new data shows that the mother's eating while the baby is in her, while it's still a fetus, absolutely impacts that child's development, its intelligence, and actually the type of cholesterol that that kid will make. And the sooner we start mom eating the right way, eating for her child, and the sooner mom starts feeding her child properly, the better the kid's going to do it in school, uh, the better behavior the kid's going to have. And you and I know uh, you take one trip to Disneyland or Disney World and you can see the effect of the typical American diet on behavior. It, it warms my heart to hear you with your your credentials, just the, the amount of time and energy and, and work in the broad disciplines of medicine that you've done to say that. My my very first book took five years to write. It's called The Better Baby Book. And it's what do you eat three to six months before pregnancy and during pregnancy to have the healthiest, smartest, least autistic kids you can possibly have. And, uh, you know, I, I that was, geez, a long time ago now in, in terms of research. Uh, but what you're saying now um, I'm seeing it in my kids, and I've I've had hundreds of people stop me at conferences and airports and all, and say, you know, Dave, you know, thank, thanks for the babies. <laughs> you know, we we couldn't conceive, and now this works. My wife's fertility consulting practice is based on it. But you said it straight up. Yeah, it's, it's what 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 happened when you were eating and there was a baby in the womb. It sets it up. Now here's my question for you: Do you think it's because the maternal microbiome, the mom's gut bacteria? are changing in, in uh, as a result of their diet, and that is what's sending the signals to the fetus? It's not only that. We now know uh, that there is an actual fetal microbiome. Yes, we do. And the baby is, yes, yes, we do know that. And the placenta is not sterile. It has its own microbiome. And the idea that, you know, this is a you know, privileged status that all of us believe is simply not true. And so it counts, you're right, it counts before the baby is conceived. And you're right, there are so many uh, women uh, who have a vaginal microbiome that is absolutely spermicidal uh, because of what she eats. And we've, I have a number of my own patients who you know, she could not get pregnant and lo and behold, we changed her diet and threw in a bunch of polyphenols, but that's another subject. Yep. And lo and behold, she gets pregnant and said, what the heck? You know, and it's like, uh, there's so much that's coming, you know, the forefront. We've just been, I, I hate the word Eve. Uh, about the power 
of this you know, incredible ecosystem that lives in us and on us. And, you know, shame on us for thinking that these little one-celled creatures don't matter much. But with every passing day, um, the power of the microbiome to affect everything that happens to us uh, is, is shocking. It It is truly shocking uh, to the point that I just wish I would have known this uh, when I was oh, when I was a kid. <laughs> the amount of suffering, uh, the amount of behavioral things, uh, all that stuff, just the brain fog that was caused by food when people would say, oh, food can't cause that. It's just you how you choose to behave. Um, there, there's some things though that let's say someone listening to this, all right, you've probably heard several hundred episodes, you know, at this point, you might believe some of that. But there are questions that keep coming up. Uh, one of them in listeners is, I've been down on oats uh, for a while saying, look, they're a grain. Uh, and you are also really down on oats. Tell me why right. oats are a bad call for kids or adults. Well, uh, my oldest daughter <clears throat> is actually a horsewoman. And she taught me many, many years ago that the only purpose of oats is to make horses fat for the winter. And she's <laughs> right. <laughs> And horses, uh, oats and horses actually uh, turn into a really cool opioid-like compound. Horses will literally knock you over to get to a bucket of oats. This They're is that true. Yeah. Addictive. I mean, they, you know, I'm, I see it on, you know, when I'm with her on the ranch. Uh, it's it's impressive. They've knocked me over. Uh, I go, oh, <laughs> that, that won't happen. Boom. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, uh, anyone who reads uh, anything anymore will realize uh, of a recent study looking at the levels of glyphosate Roundup in common oat products. I think it was 33 different oat products, including cereals, granolas, energy bars, and almost all of our oats in the United States are contaminated with glyphosate. And why would we be feeding a known uh, antibiotic to our kids to destroy their microbiome at breakfast um, is, is just, you know, we know this now. So why would we give this to our kids? What if it's organic oat cookies? They're, they're organic. <laughs> Yeah, so oats, uh, at least in my experience with my practice, uh, oats have a number of lectins that cross-react with um, wheat gluten, and you can't really tell, the immune system can't tell the difference. Interestingly, with some modern tests, we've discovered that about 70% of people who are sensitive to gluten, and there's a lot of people who are, will cross-react with a lectin in corn uh, and think that corn is gluten when they eat it. About 70% that, the zine is the, the gluten? Yeah. And, well, that's one of them. But actually, the wheat uh, corn protein epitope uh, is, is the one that cross-reacts. Okay. Yeah. Also, there is the GMO corn one, that's the zine too. And it did not exist until, you know, the GMO corn, which is now the standard. So in our house, it's don't eat the gluten-free stuff made out of corn because you don't feel good. And since my kids are used right. to feeling good, like they start getting cranky and their stomach hurts and they get a headache or they feel anxiety. And um, so, something pretty amazing happened last night. So I'm a big fan of dark chocolate. Uh, at least if it's Me made without mold. And a lot of the fermentation stuff in there, it does have mold in it. So we, I bought a $10 chocolate bar. It was a really nice high-end single estate Peruvian thing. I'm not going to name the brand because I don't want to point fingers. Uh, it was 81% dark, and it was really good, the perfect mouthfeel. So I, I eat it, and <laughs> my son eats it, and half hour later, I'm kind of passing out a little bit. There, I, I know the feeling of getting uh, mycotoxins and stuff. And my son, though doesn't get that but then at bedtime he's got all these really strong anxiety all these emotions and this time though he he said daddy 
what do you do? He said, I know that this isn't my emotions. I know this is caused by the chocolate because I felt this one other time I ate chocolate. So how do I get rid of this feeling because I don't like it? But I'm like, he's 10. And he was able to say, oh, this is an emotional symptom driven directly by food. In this case, it wasn't actually uh, a lectin from the chocolate. It was something else. But they have the same sense. Oh, I ate that. I didn't feel good. Uh, What I think most kids and most adults have lost, they don't know what feeling good feels like because they're always eating corn, oats, glyphosate, deep fried chocolate bombs or whatever the heck they're eating. I, I don't know. But is it reasonable to expect adults or kids to know what feeling good actually is anymore? No, and that's really one of the problems. Um, we are so used to feeling bad that we we really forget what feeling good is like. I'll give you an example from transplantation. Now, I'm a heart transplant surgeon, but also did a lot of kidney transplants in my training. And you can take a person who has, has got a lousy heart or a lousy kidney, and they get used to a certain way of feeling. And then we give them a new heart or a new kidney. And within 24 hours, they the first thing that they say is, oh, my gosh. I forgot what, you know, feeling normal feels like. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so used to that was what I thought was normal. And now, you know, that wasn't normal at all. But I wouldn't have known that unless, you know, now I have a normal heart or a normal kidney. And I think the same thing is true with food. We, you know, we're, we are so, you know, sick and tired uh, of feeling sick and tired, we just don't have anything to compare to anymore. And when one of the reasons that my program has gotten so much traction is that I tell people, look, you're going to hate me for a couple of weeks. Yeah. Uh, and then you're going to actually start liking me. And it's uh, it's actually pretty true because we're we're withdrawing from you know a lot of addictive substances, but then you start actually remembering you know, feeling good and the microbiome, and all of a sudden you know you get some pretty good stuff coming up to your brain that wasn't there any before. I've found that uh, when people go on a on a two week program of just eliminating crap. And I'll even go so far as saying, even if you go vegan, which is not a health path to to go down, but even if you go on on that (laughs) diet, uh, you're cutting out so much crap, you're going to feel better. Um, But then after that two weeks, if you go back to whatever it is you were doing before, that first day, you feel really awful. In fact, I've heard people say, okay, you know, I I tried this, I eliminated a bunch of stuff. And when I, I started eating again, I became more sensitive to it. Like I, yep. I handled it okay before, but now I can't touch the stuff. What's going on there? Yeah, I think that's certainly my, uh, you know, after 20 years of, of doing this with patients, that's a almost universal mm-hmm. comment that uh, more sensitive to these things now. And I think, I think it's two things. Number one, you are re-exposing yourself to something that you had been fairly tolerant to. And now all of a sudden you can actually see the difference uh, you couldn't feel before. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's fascinating. that, And I find that particularly useful with kids because yeah. in kids, the peer pressure with kids and the opportunity to eat crap is, is always omnipresent. And I, uh, I, you know, I, I have to write, you know, prescriptions to send to the, school cafeteria that, no, you know, this kid gets to bring food from mom uh, that she cooked or she made, and he's not allowed to participate in the cafeteria lunch, even though it's got the government guidelines. And, you know, believe it or not, one of my mothers, a teacher sent home, this is recently, sent home a note that said, make sure that Johnny uh, brings whole grain breads oh. to school, and and you are a bad mother. 
Seriously, this is a no. <laughs> I love teachers like that. Like you're so not going to like what happens. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so anyhow. you know, even Absolutely. even oh. with my kids, uh, they've both come home at different times and said, "I don't understand it. It's only ten in the morning, and the teachers are telling us we have to eat." Like, why are all the other kids hungry? We just had breakfast at eight. Like, why do we need to eat at 10? I'm not hungry. And and so my daughter's like, I just eat one nut so I can say that I ate, but I really didn't want to. Uh, and it's usually a macadamia nut. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, good. Good. <laughs> and so, like, what, what, okay, I'm not even going to ask how we're going to fix the, the school recommendations there. What is your advice for a parent who has a teacher or a school system that's trying to force them to feed their kids stuff that makes their kids misbehave? Uh, I mean, at, at the at the end, uh, the child is uh, ultimately the parent's responsibility. It's not the school's responsibility. And we, we could go off on that tangent for yeah. hours. But... Uh, you know, you have to be the protector of your kid. And if you are a in-tuned parent who, who, you know, looks at their kid's behavior and you try uh, something like your program or my program and definitively notice that your kid feels better, he's not getting sick, uh, it's, uh, his behavior at school is better, his school performance is better. I mean, there's really good studies showing that Kids who eat right have much better performance. Kids who have better omega-3 levels have better performance. I mean, there's really good data, and it's all in this new book to support a parent. And if nothing else, you know, take that page from the book and put it in front of the teacher and say, oh, that's interesting. Look at this. It, it's also fair to say, hey, teacher, you're trained as a teacher, and I'm not going to tell you how to do your job. You're not trained as a nutritionist. In fact, if you're a dietitian, you're probably trained in the wrong stuff anyway. Sorry, there are oh, some dietitians who've right. come around, but a lot of the American dietitians should be called the American Diabetic Indu Inducing Society if you look at what they're feeding people in hospitals. But bottom line yes. is, you're just not trained teacher. So I know you read Reader's Digest. I respect your ability to teach. I'm not gonna tell you how to teach. <laughs> you're not gonna tell me how to feed my kids because you are not an expert. And I, as the parent, am an expert in what foods cause what behaviors because I see their behavior 24-7 and you only see them for an hour in class. So let's just agree. <laughs> I'll feed my kids. Uh, that said, I do see kids who show up in school and they're uh, oftentimes when and parents have recently you know, watched some misleading documentary uh, that I just wrote. <laughs> I, I wrote a, a piece about on the, on the Dave Asprey blog. Um, and say, oh, so my kids are vegan. They're having a green apple for breakfast. And the kids come to school and they're bonkers. They, they can't control themselves. Like I couldn't control myself if I had a green apple for breakfast. Uh, so, so I suppose a teacher has a role in that. But the bottom line is it is the, the parent's job. And, and so calling out a problem uh, is important. And what you said there, look, if you are listening to this and your kids are just eating whatever the heck the school feeds them, you're missing a massive thing. And whether you buy Dr. Gundry's new family cookbook, whether you go on the Plant Paradox program, you do the Bulletproof Diet, uh, the Better Baby stuff, look, we're probably 80% in, uh, in alignment here. You can try one, try the other. I don't even care which one you try. Try them both. You might find that there's you know, there that, we go. something yeah. in the middle. It, it's totally, though, such a low-hanging fruit if you don't experiment to find out what's going to make your kids do that you're losing out as a parent. And one is everyone wants their kids to succeed, but look, do you like sleeping at night? If you feed your kids right, they won't be up every hour peeing all night long. They will sleep all night. They won't have nightmares. They won't get in fights at school. And if they do, they'll win. <laughs> and so like, you, you just can't lose. Uh, speaking of fights at school, this is like the best segue I've ever done as a podcaster. There's something in your book that I wanted to call out and ask you about. You say in your book that bullying impacts diet. In what ways? Yeah, I mean, the when you look at, for instance, uh, omega-3 levels, and you look at serotonin levels, and you look at behavior issues, this all actually stems 
from the gut microbiome and even leaky gut. And there are some pretty doggone good studies in both animals and in humans that implicates the unfortunate behavior that we now accept as normal of bullying as actually a sign of dysbiosis in the gut. And you can actually correct that. Um, You can actually take animals and change their gut microbiome and they will become far less aggressive. They will be much friendlier. They will not eat their children. In fact, you'll, you'll like this. Uh, I, years ago, I was exposed to one of the original nutritionists in America by the name of Gaylord Hauser. And he was probably the first celebrity nutritionist. And uh, I won't bore the story about Gaylord Hauser, but he used to have fat farms around the world, among other things. He ran all the Elizabeth Arden fat farms. And Gaylord Hauser, one of my patients uh, who lived to be 106, who uh, Edith Murray, was a huge Gaylord Hauser fan. Um, she gave me most of Gaylord Hauser's books. And I was just looking this weekend, thumbing through one of his books. And uh, you'll like this study. So he was, as we all were interested in the Hanza tribe in northern Pakistan. And there was a study back in, I think, the 1930s. uh, And I've forgotten the doctor's name. He decided to take a bunch of mice and put them on the Hanza diet uh, for mice. And these mice uh, lived two and a half years and never had an illness, never had anything, were friendly, never ate their children, their babies. And then he took the same group of mice and put them on the standard American diet. And uh, lots of refined carbohydrates, some wonderful fats, uh, cooked milk. And these mice not only didn't live long, but they were aggressive. They ate their own They ate other mice, and they got all the diseases of Western society. They got cataracts, blah, blah, blah. Just, and this is back in the 1930s, and it's like, son of a gun, mice eating babies when they're eating the standard American diet. And it it just jumped off the page at me. I went, of course we've got bullies in in schools. It's it's true that when you eat the wrong stuff, it creates a a very low level sense of stress and anxiety, like something's attacking you. And it is, it's the food you ate. (laughs) And when you're in that state, you see a decrease in heart rate variability and increase in fight or flight response. So you're already a kid. You're already looking to do all the emotional development that you have to do. Even if your health works, it's still hard to be a kid. And on top of that, now you, you feel this, this anxiety. So the odds of you punching another kid instead of yelling at them or instead of learning how to work it out, it's going to go up and you do this population wide. And then you start seeing, okay, this kid had a good biome, but it had three other kids who weren't. Well, there was still a bullying incident, right? And it's, it's a big deal. And I'm, I'm glad you're calling that out because people have enough nutrients. Um, I've had several interviews about that around kids' behaviorals, behavioral stuff, even things like schizophrenia and all go down. Oh, you were short on copper. You needed some zinc. Uh, and when you, you do it like for kids, I, I feel for it. When you see a little kid just out of control, like maybe it's just all emotional trauma, but maybe it's nutritional and trauma and they might've handled right. the trauma if the nutrition was there. Okay. Let's talk peanuts. Uh, in, in the better baby book, I said, all right, uh, don't eat peanuts. Like there's plenty of reasons not to do it. There's the very long chain fats. There's the the mycotoxin aflatoxin connection. There's the lectin issue. Like they're they're just a terrible food as far as I can tell. But since then, uh, some studies came out that said, okay, maybe if you give small amounts of peanuts, very small amounts to kids, they're less likely to have an allergy to peanuts. And so I was thinking, maybe I was wrong. There are only a couple things I think I got wrong in the Better Baby book. It's It stood the test of time for eight years, which makes me feel good. But I thought maybe I got that one wrong. Maybe a little smidgen was a good idea. And you're standing up saying, uh, no, that's a bunch of BS. So why 
is that approach of kind of inoculating kids with little doses of peanuts? Why is it a bad idea in, in your uh, experience? Uh, well, in the plant paradox, there uh, I quote a study that shows that 95% of humans have a preformed antibody to the peanut lectin. And so, number one, why would you even challenge a preformed antibody to a peanut lectin by giving lectins? Yes, you can probably induce tolerance, but there are three good papers in red velvet monkeys and rhesus monkeys giving them peanut oil and producing atherosclerosis. And if you take the lectin out of peanut oil and repeat the experiment with lectin-free peanut oil, they do not get atherosclerosis. And some of my critics said, well, that's ridiculous. You know, a, a red velvet monkey is not a human. I mean, come on, folks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so why would you expose a kid to, you know, something that they should not be exposed to in the first place? There, there's no human need for peanuts. And, you know, I went to medical school at Georgia and, you know, God bless Jimmy Carter. But that's, that's it's not a nut. It's a bean. Um, none of us were exposed to peanuts until 500 years ago when Columbus started bringing them back. Um, so it's just, it's just not a, a good idea. But on the counterpoint to that, Dr. Gundry, there are kids in my kids' class uh, who are saying, look, if there's a peanut in the room, uh, then you know I, I, I could die. Therefore, like I'm so sensitive to it. Would those kids have benefited from a little bit of tolerance? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because, as you know, we see this epidemic of allergies uh, where there were none before. And that's because our immune system is so hyperactivated because of leaky gut that even things that would normally your immune system would go, eh, yeah, that's a nasty protein, but your, your, your microbiome teaches your immune system, yeah, yeah, but you don't have to get all upset about this. We're not going to bother you as much as you think. And the immune system stands down. I'll give you a personal example. Growing up, I had horrible allergies, had allergy shots all through my teenage years, college, uh, could get anaphylaxis from just a little ragweed shot. Uh, really fun. Uh, <laughs> and, and so I don't have any allergies anymore. Do not have allergies. You could, you know, you could wave ragweed in my nose and nothing would happen. It to wasn't me the allergy shots that fixed it, was it? No, I changed <laughs> my diet. <laughs> so, you know, re, the, the nice thing is I've re-educated my immune system because uh, I don't have a leaky gut anymore. And they've stood down. And I think the fact that we have all these peanut allergies where we didn't before, and the same number of people have an innate, you know, antibody to the peanut lectin just means that the problem is not peanuts. The problem is our immune system is on hyper overdrive 24-7. And that's what we have to fix, not giving kids little bits of peanuts. So your approach is basically feed your kids right and feed yep. both parents right before and during pregnancy and have a proper environment in your home. And magically, you won't have an overactive immune system. And even though your kid doesn't eat peanuts, they're not going to have an overactive response to peanuts. Exactly. Okay. Seems like a much better way to fix this. It it does. And I, I mean, I've looked at them at peanuts uh, for a long time. We know the most cancer-causing, highly inflammatory uh, substance known to man is aflatoxin, which is endemic in peanuts. So they just said, oh, it's common, so we'll just set a limit that's okay. Uh, the proper level of aflatoxin in humans is zero. So eating foods that have an acceptable level that's higher than zero means you shouldn't eat the foods. And then there's the very long chain fats, which are overrepresented in Alzheimer's brains. These are long chain fats, saturated fats that are so long, they don't fit in our cell membranes and they have to fit in sideways. So the cell membranes don't work anymore. Uh, like, why do I want my kids to eat those? And so my kids don't eat peanuts. 
they've probably had them once or twice and they didn't die and probably had an upset stomach afterwards. I don't remember. But it's just, hey, kids, those are one of those many things that people think are food that aren't food unless you're starving to death, in which case you eat what you're going to eat and you take the hits. Right. What are some of the most popular swaps that you have in the Plant Paradox Kitchen where you talk about, you know, swap, you said sweet potato noodles uh, were better than obviously flour noodles, but don't sweet potatoes also have lectins in them? So they're primarily uh, in the peel, believe it or not. Um, I actually, with some of my really super sensitive kids, uh, have the have the parents pressure cook the sweet potatoes and that solves the problem. Peel is the main protective part. Uh, there are some interesting uh, toxins in Sava uh, that are actually pretty well destroyed by just plain heat. You said toxins um, in? In cassava, yeah. you know. Um, there's, there's a uh, form of cyanide that can get set loose in cassava. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so do I think that everybody should eat, you know, Tons of cassava chips? No. Uh, like with anything, like, like you don't want people eating tons of kale. Um, yeah. For Plus it tastes bad. <laughs> Down with kale. <laughs> Down with kale. <laughs> George Bush, broccoli, and you with kale. That's what you're going to be remembered for. But that's... <laughs> uh, so, um, yeah, I think... The, the swaps are really easy to easy to make. So there's a lot of flowers now that you can really fool anybody into having a great tasting food. For instance, uh, we were just at, at Gundry MD this uh, this past Friday whipping up some green banana flower pancakes that have mouthfeel and the texture of the best kind of soft, squishy wheat pancake. And uh, we were actually very impressed. And we didn't feed it to kids, but we passed it around. And so you can, can these textures from, you know, coconut flour, almond flour, cassava flour, tiger nut flour. I'm actually a big fan of tiger nut flour. It needs to, needs to have a more mainstream audience. But and we, we give swaps in the book. And you can have pancakes. You can have waffles. You can have muffins. You can have cookies. You can have cake. There's a fabulous olive oil cake in the book. Um, not made with white flour, whole wheat flour, God forbid. And, you know, lest you and I need to remind anybody, uh, the idea of whole wheat pasta to an Italian would just be the craziest thing they'd ever heard of kind of like brown rice to a Japanese yeah like brown person. rice no, no we can uh, we figured out how to get rid of the toxic parts elite the white part thank you um okay what about sweet sweeteners this is the hardest part artificial sweeteners you and i both know listeners all know those things mess up your gut bacteria they mess up your brain you don't eat yep. those and you give them to kids you want to watch yep. your kids go bonkers give them some artificial colors and artificial sweeteners and just have the worst day of your life as a parent so what do you recommend for that sweet taste in your pancakes? So there are sweeteners that are reasonably safe. Stevia is reasonably safe. Monk fruit is reasonably safe. I am uh, xylitol and erythritol. Unless you, if you use too much, you will, will people get some pretty interesting diarrhea or it. loose stools yeah. or cramps. You'll know it. You'll, you'll know that threshold. Uh, I think allulose is interesting. Um, not enough known about it yet, but I think it's going to be okay. There's some other interesting sweeteners that one, come out. In one the quick comment on allulose. Cause, you know, I, I formulate stuff, and you do too. I've looked really deep on allulose. I cannot find a non-GMO source of allulose right now. So if you're getting allulose, it comes from genetically modified corn. But I, That's the, the studies are great on allulose. Uh, and I, I've had times where I'd, I'll buy you know, various bulk, uh, whatever things, including allulose, and I eat it. I'm like, that's not right. Like I, I can tell so, something bad happened, but I eat a different batch or from a more expensive vendor, and that one doesn't have it. So there's quality issues that I think matter. But yeah, I, I'm agreeing with you. I want allulose, but come on, the, the raw ingredient suppliers who are listening to the show, and I know a lot of you guys do listen, 
get us an organic or at least a non-GMO identity protected allulose already. Like I'm ready to use it. All right. Sorry. Keep going on, on your list, but that, that does no, what I'm it, saying. <laughs> no, you're right. But you know, the other thing I think that's important, you and I would probably agree with this, is retreat from sweet. Um, we are sweet seeking creatures. Two thirds of our taste buds are sweet sensors. They are not sugar sensors. They are sweet sensors. And we are driven to find sweet because way back when we gained weight by eating fruit in the summer and all great apes gain weight by eating fruit in the summer. Uh, so we, we are sweet seeking creatures, but Part of the problem is when you eat non-caloric sweeteners, whether they are artificial or non-caloric, your brain gets fooled into thinking you ate sugar, and where is the sugar? You got cheated, and you should go back and find some more. I mean, for instance, even stevia actually increases insulin levels, and to me, increasing my insulin level is not a good thing. So I think retreat from sweet really should be a mantra. Uh, you have to train your taste buds to become tolerant of less and less sweetener. And, you know, and, and I say, okay, look, uh, you're used to, a, a, I won't use a trade name, but you're used to an artificial sweetener in your coffee. Buy yourself a stevia-based uh, sweetener Put a half as much you want you know, normally. You'll hate it for about two weeks, and then it'll taste as sweet as it used to. Put a quarter of it in, and you'll hate it for a couple of weeks, and then it'll be as sweet as you used to. And you can retrain your taste buds. It's totally true. Happened to me. Uh, I used to, to love my uh, soft drinks back uh, when I was in my Boy, early yeah. 20s, and I don't do that anymore. And if I take a sip of one, it's, it's horrifying. <laughs> Uh, you want to spit it out. And the the proof in the pudding here is my kids are the same way. They take a sip of it and go, oh, like, daddy, this is too sweet. I don't like it. And okay, I, I give myself parenting points for that one. Uh, Dr. Gundry, uh, your, uh, your work has really helped a lot of people see that there's you know, plant-based stuff isn't all harmless. Uh, just like animal-based stuff isn't all harmless, or uh, you know, it's the, those categories don't necessarily matter that much, to be perfectly honest, because you have to have the details and you have to have the whys and the hows and what to do, and it does come down to the gut. It does come down to the bacteria. Uh, and this is the first interview we've done together where we really got into kids and what it's doing to behavior and brains and, and things like that. And uh, I also appreciate the amount of work that it takes to create a proper cookbook uh, for uh, for anyone it's way more work than most people listening would think like oh i just toss some recipes together but no uh, when you when you narrate it you, you you create the the science you create the recipes you test them it's a it's a multi-year process uh, yep. for most authors so thank you for going to that amount of work uh, and it's look if you want to know how to cook you want to know how to use one pot this is a good book it's a book that's on my shelf as well uh, the plant paradox kitchen or wait, The Plant Paradox, you haven't Family Cookbook. Family Cookbook. The Plant Paradox Family Cookbook. Uh, so if you haven't uh, done, uh, if you haven't decided to feed your family in a certain way, pick up a few cookbooks that are in uh, in alignment with this kind of thing. There's stuff in the Paleo Primal. There's the Bulletproof Diet Cookbook. The Plant Paradox Cookbook. Get several. Try the recipes. I'll tell you, Dr. Gundry understands the why and the how and the details. Oh, you don't blacken this thing because it doesn't work, <laughs> right? And so if, if you take his recipes and you cook them different, it's not gonna work. And it, it actually matters to so the level of precision here. Oh, oh I, I just was lazy, I didn't pressure cook it. What do you know, you got gas, didn't you? Well, that's because it only works if you do it right. And that's why this is a book that's worth uh, your time to read and cook from. And Dr. Gundry, your website, drgundry.com, G-U-N-D-R-Y. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks again, appreciate it. and. Let's all feed our families as good as we can. Full agreement there. If you like today's episode, uh, feed your family something really good. And if you decide you're going to read the Plant Paradox Family Cookbook, you're going to read uh, any book, actually. Do the author a favor, just like you would if you were leaving a tip at a restaurant. Go to Amazon and leave a review. 
So if one recipe is really good, say it in there. If it's worth five stars, give it a five-star review. This goes for my books. It goes for Dr. Gundry's books. The reason you do that is expressing gratitude makes you live longer and affects your gut bacteria in a positive way. Okay, I just made up that last bit, but it probably does. <laughs> I'm sure it does, actually. Yeah, I'm pretty sure gratitude does, too. But the bottom line is leave reviews uh, for Dr. Gundry if you like his book. And it's just a, it's a good hygiene as a consumer of media to let the people who make the media know if we did a good job for you. And the same goes for this show. Have a beautiful day. A human upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.